Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. This is the second of three episodes that just happened to showcase filmmakers and organizations based in the Windy City, aka Chicago, which is located on the traditional unceded homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, along with dozens of tribes to cultivate it and mold the land to sustainably suit their needs since time immemorial. Chicago was formerly known as Zigago to the native people and sits on the edge of multiple ecosystems, including swamp, oak savanna, and prairie, with waterways connecting the Mississippi River and Great Lakes. It was the Anishinaabe Moen that provided the names of Chicago and Lake Michigan, along with multiple territories, waterways, roads, and parks in and around the area. The What's Up With Docs podcast embraces our commitment to indigenous rights, racial justice, and cultural equity, not only through the statement, but also in our programming and relationships with the indigenous communities. In this episode, I speak with journalist and filmmaker Rosita Cox. We chat about her local career as an on-air journalist and why she decided to transition to documentary filmmaking. We also discuss environmental racism and her latest project, which is supported by our Cartequin films, Freedom Hill, a powerful film that celebrates Princeville, North Carolina, the first town incorporated by freed enslaved Africans in America that is now suffering the impact of both environmental racism and climate change. Because Rosita is a filmmaker who is not only true to her vision and her protagonist, and in doing so disrupts the status quo, this episode's song is The Roots, What They Do. We met um, via Cartoon One last year because you are part taking part in one of their programs. And which program was that? Well, they were having uh, just a series of talks connecting people in their network to like different film companies and distributors for people who were in production or post-production with the current project. And so um, my original introduction to Cartemplin was I interned there a couple of years ago when I was transitioning out of uh, lo like local news into documentary film. Um, and it kind of opened up my whole world in, um, in Chicago as far as documentary networking. You're from the South originally, right? Yes, I'm from North Carolina. Yeah, and, and I'm from Georgia, so we kind of bonded over that. For our listeners out there, as our conversation continues, I imagine the Southern accents are going to get longer and louder and yep, bigger. Yep. That's how it goes. Lots of y'alls and <laughs> that's how it goes. We feed off of each other. But I do want to um, go into your work as a journalist because you worked for several years as a journalist and you actually went to journalism school, got your degree in that, and then you were like, on the air. So uh, talk, talk about that. Yeah, um, an interesting period that taught me lots of things, lots of like do's and don'ts for sure, as far as how to tell a story. I was like the poster child for journalism growing up in Kinston. Kinston is a small town in North Carolina. And I just knew I wanted to write and I wanted to tell stories. And uh, someone approached me in high school was like, well, you could be a journalist. And so I took that route um, because I thought that that was the only way to make a career out of storytelling. Um, and when I got there, when I, I, I worked in undergrad at, a, at the local station in Durham, ABC 11, it was really great experience. They 
allowed me to work there like as I finished my degree. So I was there for two years. And then I went to this really small town called New Bern, North Carolina. And I did a year on air there. And that was just like, it just really rocked my world. It taught me a lot, but it was an introduction to how extractive journalism can be, especially TV news. And I didn't like it. Um, and so that began, like, honestly, the end of So actually talk about that a little bit more, because usually when we think of journalism, we think of it as something that's objective, tells both sides, at least like um, back in the day. That's definitely shifted considering the recent political climate. How was journalism extractive? Yeah, I want to say that even back in the day it was. And we have been lied to about journal journalists being objective because before we even get to the journalist's ability to be objective, and we all know that humans can't be objective, um, you got to think about how the ownership because like that was something I had to grapple with too because like my news station was about to be bought by Sinclair and Sinclair is like this right wing, like, <laughs> like conservative type of company and they own about 70% of the news stations in the country. It's no escaping them if you're a journalist. As far as like just like the day-to-day extraction, it's like you get sent to a neighborhood when something very bad happened and you get sent there to cover that and then you leave and you're on this crazy deadline. So you can't really nurture relationships and community with folks because you have to turn your story in the same day. And then you're not sitting there again because it's only newsworthy when it's like tragedy. Right. And so I just like couldn't deal with that because I was reporting in my community where I grew up. And so it just felt extra wrong. Yeah, because there's that phrase of what if it, in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. Yep. You were in a position where you were in your communities doing reporting on your community. That was really just only telling, as you you knew it, part of the story. Were you having conversations with people in your community about that? Were folks coming to you and saying, hey, why are these this way? Why are these reported this way? I think one of the most eye-opening <laughs> memories I have was I was covering a shooting in my hometown and I was trying to get like man on the street interviews. And black communities just have such a terrible relationship with news media because of the way news media, like I said, like extracts everything As and doesn't yes. really isn't accountable to these communities. So I'm trying to do men on the street interviews with people I knew and they were like, we're not talking to you. Like you like the cops now. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, oh, no. <laughs> true. Uh, Cause like my news van literally had a big 12 on it. So it was like, you're literally 12. And I'm like, oh no, this is bad. Um, <laughs> that is like, that was such an eye opening conversation. And it's like, we joked a little bit, but the reality is like, the way that local journalists, like especially like news stations, their relationship to black communities, it is similar. Um, obviously it's not as violent, but it perpetuates the same types of violence in our community. So they have bad relationships with them. And that's not what I wanted to be as a storyteller. So I had to figure something else out. And documentary ain't all that better, but it's a little bit, it's a little better. It's a little better than, uh, TV news, I would say. Right. You have a little bit more of the creative control. Right. Well, as a director, you have a lot of the creative control. So mm -hmm. that makes a difference. Would you get mandates from Sinclair, like saying that you had to report a certain number of stories in this particular community? Or were they, like, on what level were they dictating how you should tell the news? So I ended up resigning 
from my contract right as the the Sinclair buyout was happening. What I do know is that Sinclair actually, they would send, I know this for a fact, and I have journalist friends who had to read these, they would send out scripts for anchors to read. And there was a compilation that went viral a couple of years ago of like all these news stations in different parts of the world saying the same thing. And it's because the Sinclair folks sent out a script for them to read. But as far as like, for me, you had a lot of control over what you would pitch what you were given approval to do and like what pushed itself to become breaking news or like prioritize, you know, like depended on, on what was going on that day. And so a lot of times, like if I was doing deep investigative piece on like something, I had to pause that to go cover a murder, you know, because that's, that's TV news for you. <laughs> and covering a murder was not looking at the root causes of violence. It was just pulling up and you know nothing, and all you're doing is standing on the corner saying this person died. And it's just so, it's such a harmful narrative. That makes me um, think about the questions of audience and considering the impact and the influence of conglomerate like a Sinclair. Who, as a journalist, like was your audience? And like, who were those stories geared towards? Because audience is a question that comes up in the documentary space too. Yeah. Um, being in Eastern North Carolina, um, our audience became, or is rather still is, is a pretty older community, older black population, older white population too. But the, that part of the state is mostly like um, low income folks really like pushed to the margins of society type of folks, because that's where I grew up from, like grew up in like Eastern North Carolina is very rural, very like, there's nothing there. There's nothing there as far as like ways people can escape poverty. It's very much so, you know. Um, so that was our our audience. And that became in Eastern North, in North Carolina is the South. And so those, those poor white folks who were watching when we're, we're not, when we're not doing in-depth reporting and we're just flashing mug shots of young black children on the screen. You know what I'm saying? That just reinforces all types of very terrible stereotypes that keep North Carolina a swing state that goes red. You know what I'm saying? Like that's those things. I just couldn't escape it. I kept thinking about these things to continue to do that. And I and even while I was there, I remember sending out emails to like my general manager, like we can't keep putting mugshots up. This is lazy reporting. Like this is this does nothing. It adds nothing to the story. So yeah, so our audience was like lower income folks, poor people in the South, um, black people and white people, but mainly older folks. Cause this cause young people like people my age and especially people younger than me don't I don't think they watch local news. Yeah, I don't watch um, local news because like I mostly when I turn on TV, I watch Hulu and, and Roku, you know, and yeah. like I watch I watch things when I want to watch them, but I never watch the local news. Like the only regular news I listen to is Democracy Now. Yeah. And then but I will like um, look on like local newspapers like the L.A. Times and stuff. But as mm -hmm. far as like sitting down and watching a local newscast, like I haven't done that probably since the 90s. And I wonder, as our viewing habits change, what's happening with local news journalism is like in order to tap into that older, quote unquote, conservative audience that always that still watches local news, that they tend to also want to continue to perpetuate a particular story. Right. In order to draw that audience. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I think that, um, you know, like the model reinforces the audience and it, it's just a cycle. Um, that's why I always say, like, I judge journalists. I do. I think they need to be held to a better standard. But I always can 
I can still pull out and see the larger picture that the model really doesn't create space for you to be a responsible community oriented journalist. In TV, I'm talking about TV news specifically because that five o'clock news deadline is crazy. I think you have a little bit more because I did. I worked in print when I moved to Chicago and I had a little bit more agency and authority over how I interacted with community. My deadline wasn't a daily one. I was doing a beat. But yeah, because I just remember doing certain stories and, you know, the comment section online would be crazy. Like they they wouldn't like it. And so there's definitely, like you definitely have to know your audience. And unfortunately, the audience, like I said, was Eastern North Carolina. Older, older white folks are conservative here. Like that's what the audience was. So. So that's interesting. So you worked in um, television and in and in print journalism. So do you think just because the nature of print journalism now that it's more conducive to certain types of investigative journalism um, than your regular TV news? I want to preface all of this with say I am so biased. I'm so biased and so burned on TV news. <laughs> but I do think that you have so even before I answer that, I, the my print journalism work in Chicago was by way of an organization called City Bureau. And City Bureau is a nonprofit. Uh, so they're not for profit journalism, which is a whole different thing. Because again, the TV news stations are, are privately owned and they trying to push ratings so that they can you know make money, which is just terrible uh, when it comes to like a thing like journalism where you actually need um, you need to inform the public in a in a in a in a certain way as far as like safety goes, which is why you know I can go on a whole rant about like COVID and black communities and the vaccine and all that stuff. And and I think journalism is to blame. But my time doing I was reporting on the West Side in Chicago uh, through City Bureau. I was able to just, you know, go to the community and like hang out at the local coffee shops and start talking to folks that way. You know what I'm saying? That wouldn't have, I didn't have that type of leisure time. And I, I put leisure in quotation marks because it's not leisure because that's a part of the process is being in the community so you can understand the issues that you're reporting on more. So I think print, I think of organizations like ProPublica is a, is a good organization that I respect. I think they do good reporting. City Bureau really changed my um because I was I was so done with journalism and then I moved to Chicago and found City Bureau and they're really trying to do good work. And so um there are still there are still journalist organizations that are doing good work for sure. But I still think the entire model needs to be like reimagined <laughs> because it's it's um it's, you know, it has dark dark roots. I'm still learning every day. I find out something more like screwed up about journalism or documentary, but I was, I'm, I'm studying because of my, um, the topic in my film, Freedom Hill, I'm, I'm reading environmental stuff and learned, mm -hmm. I was reading about like Miami and, um, and like hurricane season in, in Florida and all that stuff. Learn that the Miami Miami Herald mm -hmm. is owned by business mm -hmm. people. Like the LA Times is owned by business. Like when they first started these, I don't know who they're owned by now, but like businessmen started these publications to push an area. And whole time I'm thinking like the Miami Herald or like these these publications think they're just giving us that unbiased. You know what I'm saying? And that's why they teach. That's why in journalism school, they tell you to be unbiased because unbiased means in their coming from that white lens, 
You know what I'm saying? It it simply means to reinforce the ideals of whiteness. And so um, when I was started learning that and you learn about like yellow journalism and even things that I learned in journalism school, like, and I'm sure you've heard this, Tony, like don't burn bridges because journalism, you know, like is such a networking type of field. I want to tell young people who are like just graduating and going into film or journalism, like burn bridges. Some bridges need to be burned because some people treat you like, absolute come on you know what i'm saying and then they want you to just put up with it because that's the name of the game that is not the name of the game <laughs> you do not have to put up with it so i just think like, yeah all of the things i learned in journalism school have been so purposeful and i know like what to take and what to leave you're also working on your uh, master's uh we're in a documentary at northwestern so like how is what you're learning in that program informing the work you do as a documentary filmmaker slash journalist in your current work yeah i want to say the exact same thing like i feel like you need to learn the rules so you know which ones you want to abide by or not uh because again northwestern <laughs> that's what it is northwestern is just yet another white institution that's teaching from like a white lens and so i just learned about like documentaries roots being attached to this as you say you're trained in anthropology like ethnographic like it's just all bad like yes. just going to these places <laughs> extracting their stories making a profit and then like doing doing nothing to add to the community i will say like i i learned the history and the roots through my degrees but like i learned how to be a community member by being in community and you can't teach that by going to like grad school you gotta just learn that so similar to my training as a journalist at UNC um, at Northwestern, my film program is still taught through a white lens and it's still a white institutional space. I only have one black professor and up until all of the stuff that happened last summer, it, there was not really a, a huge effort to bring people of color or black people, black women specifically to speak to us. And we had to raise that point. So, you know, like I filter it all I filter it um, knowing that now I, I think as a as a young like a young young person leaving college I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and I believed in journalism and I believed in like being unbiased and uh, objective and all these things but being in the real world I now know and so I think I was saying like you learn the rules so that you can take what you need and break the rest um, and especially knowing that these rules were written by and for white people. They can teach us these things. What I have learned, you can't be taught how to be a community member. You just gotta be in community. And so like my whole thing now is just like, even with filmmaking, like being making films with people I'm in community with and making films like within my community alongside you know, like community members. And, and those are things you can't learn by, you know, going to a film program or by going to journalism school. You just got to exist in the world. How far are you into your um, MFA program? Like, when are you going to be? Oh, I'm out of the door. I'm about you're to done. Go. Okay. You I have got that... maybe three more weeks. <laughs> oh, girl, you, you're done, done. Okay. Awesome. Good congratulations. Um, are you looking at, uh, any potential like PhD programs or you just want to go out there and just be a filmmaker? Man, listen, Tony, if I ever talk to you in the future and I say I'm applying to PhD programs, please fly to Chicago uh -huh. and tell me in my face, don't do it. Well, I'm, I'm the so wrong one to do it because like, <laughs> 
I, I want to get me a PhD because y'all have three masters. So I'm like, that's next oh, on my list. So. You like school. I yes. don't like school. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like school. I'm done. I'm okay. so done. Well, in your case, if you tell me, hey, Tony, I'm thinking about PhDs, I will come to Chicago. But only, <laughs> only if it's in the spring or the summer. And yeah. Then, and then, <laughs> right. I, don't, I, I lived in Chicago through one winter. Mm-hmm. And, that and that's all you need. Yeah. Right. And that was after four years of Minnesota. So I'm like, oh, I can handle winter. Mm-mm, Chicago for a whole other beat. Yeah. 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 So. But no, not not okay. interested in PhD right now. But I know how I am and I'm a busybody. So in about three years, I'll probably be looking up like, like eh, what can I do next? Yeah. I need to get another <laughs> degree. You know, <laughs> how long is the master's program at Northwestern? Is it two years, three years? Mm-hmm. It's two years. Do you want to do a shout out to that one uh, black professor? Marco Williams, you probably know him. If you haven't heard of him, it might be because he was out of the country for a while. Northwestern has a Qatar campus, and so he was actually teaching there. And so up until last year, there were no Black faculty members in my film program. Um, in so, Chicago. Yes, exactly. Um, and even and even still, there you know, no Black women. So there's, you know, work to be done. But Marco um, is my academic advisor and has become like a friend and mentor. We lived like in the same neighborhood in Chicago. So I'll go um, talk, like walk to his house down the street during quarantine in the thick of it and talk to him from the porch. Um, so he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely helped me get through this program um, because I remember talking to him after my first quarter and wanting to drop out. Um, and like just not not seeing the the full you know he would say you know there's light at the end of the tunnel and you know you got to take grad school into your own hands and 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 create the experience that you want and stuff like that and uh, it it got me through honestly Uh, and that just speaks to the importance of you know like having mentors and having mentors that have a black experience as well right because yeah they they could help you hold on and and stay on so um have there been any, well, you mentioned everything that happened last year with the protests. So as a result of the protests, have there been any significant changes at Northwestern? My program is fairly new still. I think it's in its six or seven year. And I will say that the difference, because I'm always thinking about the difference in like journalism and documentary media, the difference is they do listen to us. Uh, like mm. we can critique them and they will at least try <laughs> a, a little bit, you know? And so a, a, a young black, Garrett Bradley, do you, have you heard of her? Bring her up because like, she's one of our visiting artists this, this quarter. I'm a, a woman of color. And then like, we just had a masterclass with Bradford Young, who's a black man. And so they, there has been, there has been, um, you know, it, there has been an effort to bring more people of color, specifically Black people, um, but there's always more that could be done. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're working on a um, series called Freedom Hill, and um, tell us what it's about. Yeah, so Freedom Hill is the first episode of a, of a four-part series exploring the different manifestations of environmental racism in our country. And so Freedom Hill is about Princeville, North Carolina, which is the first town chartered by Black people in the nation and how it continuously floods every year, every hurricane season. And it's almost like a waiting game of like when the big one's going to come and wash us out completely. Um, but I, again, grew up in Eastern North Carolina, so I 
also like survived many floods and just remember hurricane season and it being very scary. I remember like being in my grandmother's house and like her telling us to sit down and stay still because God was working. So like we had to sit <laughs> in the dark right. during these storms. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are two very large hurricanes that kind of define uh, our have become like the defining moments of environmental racism and that's the 99 flood in Princeville and then the 2016 flood which I covered as a reporter at Channel 12 Mm -hmm. um and those floods left the city like 22 inches of water uh in 99 they stayed underwater for 11 days um people see a lot of people don't realize like when they think think about hurricanes everybody thinks about you know Florida you know, mm-hmm. and then, yep. and then Texas, when it turns to the left, you know, when they turn to the left, but I mean, I knew, I grew up in Georgia in Augusta and, um, not that we had a defined hurricane season, but what would happen is, um, usually like after, uh, a, a hurricane travels up through the Gulf and like, if it, if it's going through Florida, then it actually sometimes turns to the right and go through Georgia and the Carolinas, mm-hmm. you know, um, may not be a lot of wind but sometimes it's it's a lot of rain and a lot of flooding so they right so the carolines are very much in the path of can be very much in the path of hurricanes yes yeah a lot of people don't recognize that and a lot of people don't realize you know like once the news cycle moves on people are years and years displaced like still don't have anywhere to go and um that was really the um the the motivation behind the film was just that like people were still trying to rebuild their entire lives from 99. And then they told us that it was a once a century flood. So people kind of, you know, and then 2016, not even 20 years later, it happened again. Yeah, it and again, so yeah. mm-hmm. displaced the displaced people were already living at their cousin's house, you know? So like, um, and then a lot of these folks can't get flood insurance because technically they're not within the floodplain. Cause, right cause or you don't get flood insurance if you're within a floodplain yeah official yeah. floodplain yeah mm-hmm. right or they'll determine what happened to be an act of god um mm. as, and it was inevitable even though that is not true nothing is inevitable in america right. <laughs> it's all mm-hmm. designed and so 2016 was determined to be an act of god so that reduced the amount of funding or insurance claims that people could get like one of the characters in my film talks about getting eight thousand dollars to rebuild his entire life that is nothing that's That's all you get yeah wow wow and of course that's when the orange menace was in office so i doubt some of those areas were getting any kind of like real relief because of his foolishness that was part of the impetus for for freedom hill so what made you decide okay this won't fit into a feature i need to do a series I think that I got really into environmental research and like even in like development for Freedom Hill, just like trying to figure out, you know, like why does it flood here and how is our drainage system set up and what does this mean? And then I learned quickly that the number one indicator for living in an environmentally hazardous place is race. And then I was like, what? I didn't think these things overlap, but of course they do because they always do. And so that's when I was like, I want to do like a, I want to do more stories about the different ways. Cause I think that like, Flooding in the hurricanes is just one way, but there are different ways um, that environmental racism like creeps up on us and we don't realize it. And so 
Yeah, I just wanted to tell uh, like, uh, I feel like if you put it into, if you break it down like that, people get a better understanding. Um, and there are a lot of Black people fighting, um, you know what I'm saying, for environmental justice. So I want this this film series to aid them in that fight, in that educate, education, um, because Another thing is like growing up in Kinston, which is down the street from Princeville, didn't learn about the history of Princeville, don't, didn't know what environmental racism was. Like these are things I came across as an adult. And so um, I just want to, to create something that so that people growing up in Eastern North Carolina specifically don't get to age 23 and realize they were living next door to, to this incredible place called Freedom Hill that our ancestors created out of nothing. Um, and so, yeah. That's why I wanted to do a whole series. Because there's a lot of story to tell. You mentioned um, some of the, the sneaky ways environmental racism manifests. Can you like articulate some of those so they won't be able to sneak up on us? I remember there were so many films I watched during research. I watched this film called Mossville, Population of One. And so same story. I think it was a traditionally Black community Mm -hmm. our historical black community and they put up these factories started polluting the air and people started dying of cancer people were getting cancer that dropping dead. and this man is the only person who stayed his parents died of cancer he too has cancer but he's like refusing to leave his place because of the historical significance of the land and like i think you know like beyond environmental racism people don't understand like black people's connection to land right and, like the spiritual connection to it as well and a lot of people see these stories and like well why don't you just move if the air is giving you cancer you know what i'm saying and then also it's about like sometimes you can't just pick up and move and so i think about that we're we're doing like research for the second episode and we were looking into um the dmv area but my associate producer had told me about like these sites where you on the epa's website you just type in your address and it'll show you if you are living near like an environmentally hazardous site i can't remember what they call it there's a word for it yeah and like for example like there's like a military base or some type of base in the dmv area um i think we were in like pg county or something and um something that they're doing there isn't is 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 um interrupting the soil like it's doing something to the soil so it's like things like that that you're like you you live your day-to-day -day life because you're not in investigating the soil you know that you're yeah because like you're, you're but, yeah i guess that's not on your agenda <laughs> right right yeah it's just so many different things and then just like we have to think about how black people ended up in these spaces to begin with like Princeville does sit on a floodplain and that's because like our ancestors had to settle land that was like this like that was swamp land because white people didn't want it you know what I'm saying so like even even the very beginnings of our existence in these spaces are a result of racism and the the issues that we continue to have to deal with you know so um yes yeah, it's, it's so many stories so many different things so many um one of my mentors actually gave me the idea to do one of the episodes in Chicago because you know Chicago has a very very dark history of environmental racism as well there was like a landfill put in a um, black community um like I think it was in the 70s or 80s and that's still impacting the soil you know what I'm saying that's still impacting the water there um so see so through the pipes and all of that mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yep yeah. Chicago's lead pipes we got like rusting lead pipes everywhere it's like 
hundreds of them that have not taken them out. <laughs> That's true. Cause this, um, you know, everybody knows about um, obviously like Flint. I don't think they've, they haven't fixed their situation yet. And nope. we're what, six years, probably seven years into it. Um, yeah. But even um, this is a few years ago in Atlanta, they had a really bad, um, bad winter. Well, a bad winter in Atlanta is like two days of like below freezing. <laughs> but it's a situation where it was below freezing and a lot of the pipes um, began to burst because, I mean, you're talking about a hundred plus year old system. And you're talking about also a country that has not invested in its infrastructure. So, you know, people are getting these sky high water bills because things were leaking. And um, yeah, it's a whole other whole, um, it's a whole slew of things. But um, so let's talk about your first episode of, of Freedom Hill. So what's the focus on, of that one? Yeah, so my main character um, is a woman named Marquetta Dickens. And um, Marquetta is a young woman um, who had moved away. She grew up in Princeville. Her whole family's from Princeville. Most of them are still in Eastern North Carolina. She moved away uh, to play like college basketball. And then she moved to Philly. And while she was away, um, she did this like ancestry thing. Um, and she's been trying to like trace back her lineage. And what she found through that test was uh, her great, great grandmother was, was the only woman and the only black person, like black woman listed as a property owner um, in the 1900 census. And so with that, um, she kind of felt like this, like this, like call to return um, and do something about Princeville um, because the, the levy, <laughs> Princeville didn't have to flood in 2016. It flooded because like the levy was already broken and then like the drainage systems in the town hadn't been updated and all that stuff. And so she's she's just an organizer around these causes she she started an organization called freedom freedom organization and um she's moving back home and she's moving back to princefield to eastern north carolina which is something you don't see because even me like i'm just like i ain't never returned to kinsville like, and like, like i'm gonna say chicago in the big city yeah yeah <laughs> and then i met marquetta and i started doing this film and i was like dang you gonna make me move back home and start doing work aren't you so it's about her journey um she alludes to like a, a mayoral run i'm um, in the film okay. um and she's and that's one of the reasons why she wants to go back. Her grandmother was the mayor during the 1999 flood. And so her grandmother's uh, say, like one could say her grandmother saved Princeville in that they, instead of dealing with the issues in Princeville, the state wanted to literally pick the town up and move it. Let me ask you about that, because sometimes when they don't want to go in and like rebuild on the back end, they're trying to get that land. Right. Yeah, you know, because they want it for something else because they, they see in like some potential in they you know, because I mean, that's what happened a lot in New Orleans, you know, like, oh, we're not going to rebuild in these areas where, you know, if they weren't under resourced neighborhoods, they probably would have rebuilt them. Yeah. You know, because they're like, oh, this is like free land, you know, because people didn't have deeds and stuff and or. Yep. And then, you know, like they they offer you something for your property and it's not what it's worth. <laughs> but people are are desperate so they take it and now you know the the state owns your property or the city owns your property so so yeah there are also these vignettes of like just different people in Princeville there's one woman who's like my favorite character honestly I love Miss Helen she her house was flooded twice she grew up in Princeville and raised her children there and, and after 2016 she just decided to move because she didn't want to 
she couldn't do it anymore. So uh, the story of Princeville is crazy because it's right beside Tarboro. Uh, Tarboro is literally just, you can walk to Tarboro from Princeville. That's the, the white town, quote unquote. And um, that's where like, there were like KKK, like, you know, the offices were over there. And they lit- Tarboro literally tried to like, absorb Princeville they tried to get it taken like their charter taken because they didn't want black people to have a town right next door to them so this town has just been fighting for survival since even before it existed which is just the story of of blackness right yes (laughs) um yeah so so yeah it's about Marquetta and it's it's giving you a glimpse into like just like the day-to-day we film like this woman um her 106th birthday party she's 106 right the town did a parade for her and she was a sharecropper in Princeville like she she has and it's to say that like despite all of this people really love this town and like it's falling apart and you might not see it but people have a connection to this land because like this is where our ancestors were literally sold into slavery like yeah, that's they been came through the tar river right mm-hmm. and so um yeah that's what that's what freedom hill is about marquetta and her journey but also just like a glimpse into the town and how people continue to be resilient right and um what have kind of funding have you been able to get for the the project because like for for a lot of folks out there who are interested in series um you know there's uh there is becoming more funding available for series but it's still not as much as like four four features so yeah like what what are you doing to raise money for this film? yeah freedom or the hill series is the, freedom hill the first episode was done off of a prayer and a passion <laughs> um but uh <laughs> no just like it goes back to community and like I love making films with my like community so my DP like he didn't you know like he deserved way much more than what we were able to give him to do this film but um I am a sisters in cinema which is an organization in Chicago for black women um uh I'm a sisters in cinema fellow so there was funding there um for the for uh, and all of the money has gone toward Freedom Hill and I haven't even really thought about the second episode yet as far as I'm going to to get the first done (laughs) yeah um I got a like um Chicago has like an individual artist program so I got funding from there um Northwestern gave a little bit of funding and um I'm I'm you know, finalists for a couple of grants right now. And then just applying for grants has been my strategy. Just like I can find grants. And you know what, Tony, like after our conversation, when you sent me that air table, that has just been like, that was the best thing from those meetings. Honestly, like you gave me so many resources and they ended up definitely paying off. Um, So found a lot of grants there. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, So yeah, that's, and then everything else, like everything has just aligned. It's kind of crazy. Like, um, you know, I had been talking about wanting to get it into North Carolina State Public School curriculum. And then someone from the State Board of Education just emailed me. Like I th- I had that thought and then someone reached out. I ain't even, you know, and then like um, I want the I want the music to play a very significant role in the film. And then boom someone emailed me wanting to score a film <laughs> like from North Carolina to a, okay. a black man named Calvin so like we're working together and so of course the dream is to to raise enough money where everybody gets paid their their true rates right but honestly it's been a community effort because everybody kind of believes in the story so it's been really it's been a collaboration for sure 
I think I'm set on doing the episode in Chicago um, because Chicago has a lot of stories. And then also I, because I live here, it, it won't have to be such a, you know, like fundraising, you know what I'm saying? Like I can, I can shoot it here. So doing something in Chicago, I don't know yet. And then I was interested um, in the DMV area. Um, and then also interested in like Hilton Head, South Carolina. Being from um, Augusta, from Augusta, Georgia, yeah, we would hit, so Augusta, for you that y'all know, is like, it's in Georgia, but it's right on the border between Georgia and South Carolina, so like, you can get to South Carolina like in 10 minutes. Some of the beaches I would go to as a kid were like at, um, Charleston and Hilton Head in, in South Carolina, and Hilton Head has a really interesting history because like, for, well, first of all, when you go through there, like everything is brown and beige because they have like, they have certain codes about what the buildings should look like. But um, so everything looks the same, like everything's like at a certain height, just so there, there won't be like, I guess kind of like any eyeline pollution. I don't know if that's the proper wording for it. It's one of the few cities or incorporated areas in South Carolina where back in the day, they allowed um, tons of private ownership for beaches. So there are incredibly few public beaches in Hilton Head. They are far, few and far between because everything is like a golf community or a resort or something. Whereas if you travel further up the coast or like further north of Hilton Head or further south of, of Hilton Head, even if you're in South Carolina, you'll see a lot more public beaches. So um, they basically, they were like gentrifying that area before there was like gentrification. Mm -hmm. Doing it before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at least before we had a name for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's the Hilton Head story going to, what are you thinking that's going to be about? Yeah. You know, the uh, Gullah Geechee community is in South Carolina. Just their battles with climate change and, and hurricanes and kind of like, again, this theme of just this connection to the land. And that's really important to, to that community. Um, and what happens when it keeps getting washed away, you know, like, I think the biggest theme for me with the whole series is just to bring to understanding that like black people are the most vulnerable um, among the most vulnerable communities. And when climate change, like when the earth is really getting angry at us as it already is, um, black people are going to suffer first. Uh, our communities are the ones that are gonna be erased um, and just trying to um, connect those dots for folks. I think a lot of people have connected the dots, but still a lot of dots to be connected um, that like climate change and blackness and environmental issues and um, all of these things that are that are against us as black people. Um, and, and how do we start having conversations and, and making policy and getting Princeville's, you know, levy system fixed and stuff like that so that we preserve our history. And how do we do it? And, you know, like, and I, and that's why it's important. Like my whole team is, is black people. Um, and how do we, because I'm all about like archiving and like archiving um, these experiences and, and, and as a black woman um, and not relying on, you know, mainstream media and white people to, to tell our stories as they're going to continue to do. I don't know what, what we can do to make them stop. They're going to keep doing it, but just trying to reimagine like filmmaking, uh, which goes back to like, what have you learned at Northwestern? Like learned everything I, I hope to unlearn. <laughs> oh, there she go. Burning some bridges, y'all. <laughs> I'm not burning bridges. My program know how I feel and I'm always holding them accountable because like, yes. you got to, we gotta like we have to like build the way we want to go uh, we can't keep Amen. just like doing the same things just because that's the way it is mm -mm. Mm -hmm. it's not working yeah, we, it was never working create, 
a new paradigm. Um, oh, there's this there's this meme going around that said, um, "Ancestors, forgive me for wanting a, a seat at the tables that you would have flipped." Uh, yeah, and it, to me, it really speaks to me because, particularly in this this documentary space, there's like uh, there's all this conversation well around diversity and equity and like wanting a seat at the table. And I'm learning, you know what? I don't want to be at that table. That table is is rocky at best. Mm -hmm. The food is the food is nasty. Food ain't seasoned. It ain't fun. They not having fun. Exactly. And the conversation isn't good. Right. One thing, my grandmother, um, who my my grandma was not the nicest person, um, but that woman, she was mean as sin, but she could cook. But one thing she would say, so I always ate her food because it was good. Like that woman, she she could like bake anything. It's because of her that I will never ever eat uh, another like somebody else's red velvet cake because like she made the best red velvet cake and I've had like I've had millions of well not millions but a lot of red velvet cakes and it does not it does not hold to what she created and she wasn't the type to keep recipes and I'm not a baker so it's not like I could recreate it but I just kept getting disappointed because I keep eating bad red velvet cakes so I was like I'm just not going to eat no red velvet cake again so uh, but she always said you know you should never break bread with the enemy so I'm like, we fight to eat at this table where people are not, we're not, they're not seasoning the food. They're not giving us food we don't like. They, they're not giving us food we like. And um, really it's not food that's not for us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So flip, flip it's hard. Table, I get it. Like I understand. I, I get it too, but. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's how I feel too. And I was, I read, <laughs> I read in, um, like one of my one of my classes that was talking about media outside of the mainstream and I read like a bell hooks article about black people need to like um divorce from the mainstream or this this desire to be in the mainstream because that's that's just perpetuating the things we claim that we're working against and I get it because it's hard out here trying to pay your bills like <laughs> I know because you you, you got to pay the rent and unfortunately the mainstream has the main money sometimes so you got to navigate that yeah i mean it's, it's something to me navigated and negotiated but um i think just being being in a position of like okay wanting to oh i need to be in that room versus like oh okay um that room when i have to go into that room i know it's not it's not for me so i yeah. can, like kind of prepare myself right know? absolutely yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um I want to get back to the journalism piece a little bit, um, only because, uh, particularly as as a as a black woman who is in journalism, you know, we have black women have this long history in journalism. Yeah, I'm going back to thinking about like um, the great, you know, Ida B. Wells, you know, and the work that, she, that the work that she did, and then the founder of the um, Carlotta Bass, who's like the founder of the California Eagle which was like the only one of the few black owned newspapers from like the forties to like the sixties or something like that. Um, so first of all, I want to ask in journalism school, do you learn about like these women? <laughs> She's like, y'all should see her face. She's like, you know better than to ask me that question. <laughs> I didn't face. learn about, no. And if I did learn about it, it was like a sentence in a book, you know, like it wasn't like a whole paragraph. 
Nah, I had to do that research myself, like, and especially with Ida B. Wells and being in Chicago, like, those were things that I learned so much after school. They taught you what they wanted you to know. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, there are gaps here. Especially like with the Chicago, well, being going to school in Chicago and I'm thinking about news, like uh, newspapers, like with the Chicago Defender, you know, mm-hmm. because like what Langston Hughes wrote for that, like back yeah. in the day. Yeah. So yeah. My, that, I think my first article in Chicago was through the Defender. So part of that lineage. Right. Yeah. Defender, the Defender in Chicago is still holding up. They've been here for a long time. I just want to make a comment about the, the, the Hilton head piece for, for folks who, uh, cause you mentioned the Gola Geechee culture. So, um, for folks who want to get more familiar for that, if you should know, well, you should know, but if you don't know, I want to recommend, um, checking out Julie Dash's like phenomenal film, um, Daughters of the Dust, but it's about this black family on the South Carolina coast. Cause that, this is where Julie's people are from. Julie's people are from South Carolina. So this is kind of like, uh, like her thoughts about her and her ancestry story about, but it's about this set during the early 1900s, this black family, primarily matriarchal is contemplating thoughts about like having to move away from from their home in the island and it's it's um rooted in the gula the gullah the gullah geechee culture and there's this full this is great um facebook page called um geechee experience which is like a cultural website which like it's about the geechee experience so they have things on there you know you you'll geechee gullah if you know so like little fun little quizzes like that um, so I'll just invite people to um, check uh, those out. What are some of the challenges that you've come up against, like doing a, a documentary that has an environmental focus? I think the challenge is like as filmmakers, we have to become mini experts on everything. And so just like trying to learn as much as I can learn about um, about hurricanes and the environment and all of these things that has been like a, a, not a challenge, but that's been a responsibility. Um, I think that for me as a, it's not specific to this film, but as a filmmaker, I, I'm trying to just like, uh, lessen, I don't know if we can completely do away with it, the power hierarchy between participant and filmmaker. And so like, um, we're in rough cut, like we, we just got like our second rough cut. Um, so we're at, that's where we are in post for freedom Hill. And, and as early as it is, the film looks nothing like I want it to look and we have things to reshoot and stuff. I've invited my participant to participate in feedback sessions and I don't know how that's going to go, but I, this is my first time doing this. I wanted her to be able to give feedback while it still mattered. Because by the time we picture lock and I'm sending her to cut, it's not going to matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, you're like, I'm not going back into this. Right. So. And so like <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to do that with this film and seeing how it goes. Because I, I just want Black people to have agency in the way that we're portrayed. I mean, nobody's an expert on you, like <laughs> other than you. Um, And so making sure I include folks in the in the process. Um. And then just raising money, like trying to, um, I feel guilty when I say like my team works, uh, worked on Freedom Hill for like lower than their, their typical but, rates. It, but, but that's, uh, that's, uh, that's actually the norm for a lot of documentaries. Um, either people work for lower until they can raise more money or they work on like, uh, they have their money deferred until right. money. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And just trying to like, um, you know, get the money so that I can play 
pay back black people for what they're worth. Um, and so, yeah, I think being a responsible filmmaker is just hard, you know, cause you, it's, it's just hard being accountable and knowing that that's, you don't want to, you know, I keep saying this, but perpetuate the, the harmful parts of, of this industry. And so just holding yourself accountable. And someone had asked me before, like, how do I hold myself accountable? I keep people around me who do that. So like my friends who are filmmakers also have a code that they go by. And if I'm doing some effed up stuff, they probably gonna be like, hey, girl. Hey, girl. Like, you <laughs> Let me to... pull you to the side. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> yes. I love that. That. that's part of the whole thing with the village and um in the community is like you want to hold you want to hold have people who not only hold you up but like as you say like hold you accountable so um speaking of like what have some of those corrective conversations been like yeah and you don't have to disclose any names anything but like what have you learned you know actually including my participant in the in the in the process of filmmaking is something I learned from one of my friends. Kai mm-hmm. Thomas is a um, young woman in Chicago. Oh, yes, yeah, she's the one who's doing the, the one on the, the taking down the statues. Change right? the name. Mm-hmm. Change, change yeah, the name. Park and, name. Um, yeah, she's doing the, um, I got, she sent me a t-shirt. Uh, it's about, that is, they're replacing the statue of this racist who I can't remember, but with a statue of, of Anna, Anna Douglas. Yeah, so they're changing Frederick- the, the part name. They're changing the part name from a slave owner, probably member of KKK, all that. And then changing, they changed it to uh, Anna Frederick Douglas. So yeah, Anna and Frederick. And so for those of you who don't know, um, Anna is Frederick Douglass's first wife, the one, uh, the sister who was instrumental in getting him to freedom like who helped to kind of like pay his ticket, help plan his way. You know, she doesn't, she does not get a lot of the credit she deserves. Right. Yeah. Kyle, yeah. we had that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That was important to the, to the children who were organizing. But like Kai from that film, actually her main participant ended up, she's like a consulting producer on the film. And I had never really thought about including my participant in the process, honestly. So that's something that I got from her. Um, and that's something that I had to think about. Um, something else that I have learned just by doing, and that's why I was just like, you just got to do it and then you learn. Um, I was the impact producer for one of Cartim Quinn's co-productions with the Marco Project. When we were filming that, we did like, hours and hours and hours of interviews with people about the worst day of their lives and the, the 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 impact of that was they were sad when they left and the crew had just listened to all these terrible stories and we all just felt heavy and so in my I'm directing a project called the Black Archive Project and when we were filming interviews for that um I had like a set therapist and she did like oh, a go ahead girl wait, wait, say that again you had a what <laughs> I had, I had a set therapist for, okay. for our interviews um, and she did like, you know, and some people didn't do the debriefing sessions, you know what I'm saying? And that's fine. But, they, when but they there's saw an option there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, thank you. And so it was really good. And so just learning from from experience um, and just like trying not to 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 do something twice. That's not good. Um, right, right. That, so the set yeah. therapist was there for uh, not only was it just primarily there for the crew because you know things are being stirred up for them, or is for the crew as well as the, the participants. That it anybody was for the, go to that it person. was primarily for the participants, but the crew um, 
were also um, offered, you know, like debrief sessions. And um, she was like, she uh, counseled from like a radical lens and like a spiritual lens. And so like, she was like uh, saging us down before we went into the interviews and stuff. It was like a whole thing. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, that was new. I had never done that before. Um, and like thinking about a wellness plan for set, like for production. And, and that's something that I'll take with me. I asked my participants, um, you know, like before we even set out to make the movie kind of like, what would you like out of this experience? And that seems really simple, but like having that conversation is so important because I think now we're all trying to do these impact campaigns and all that stuff. And sometimes before we get there, we need to stop and ask people what type of impact they want <laughs> before we just assume. Um, yeah. So that's something I picked up from you know when I was still a journalist and then the other thing is like doing a just like we talked about this a little bit actually in our first conversation but like doing pre-production for real of course if your budget allows the the beauty of doing a film back home is that I just like stayed with family members uh, while I was doing pre-production but like going and, and hanging out with people before you start filming um and like just doing very very simple like things like one of my characters I knocked on her door one day and it was really hot in North Carolina. It was during COVID. Um, and so we were planning on meeting outdoors, but she was like, come inside, I'm watching, you know, this show. And, and like, Cause the, the, we got the AC, the AC on. Right. So, and yes. like, we just sitting on the couch watching, like watching her shows that I have time for that, but like, I needed to sit there and watch her shows with her because I was asking something for her from her, you know what I'm saying? And that time creates connection. Something else I learned is like film your interviews last don't film your interview first um and that gives you time to like have some type of relationship with your with your participants and so by the, we filled all of our interviews on the last day of filming and so by then we had all of these experience together that we can then unpack in the interview and so um yeah those are those are some some things I've picked up that I hope to take with me to my next project as well one of the primary reasons why I wanted to do this film is because I was really just struck by having not learned about Princeville, even though I grew up right next door. And so the educational component is really important to me and um, wanting to like have it put into North Carolina, you know, public school curriculum, as I said, and using the film as a teaching piece um, to show I mean, I'm mostly concerned with young Black people knowing their history and their roots. And so to show young Black kids, you know, like, this is where you are and this isn't, um, this is specific to North Carolina. But the other side of that piece is wanting to do pending in-person stuff, uh, wanting to do this like garage tour where I literally just want to take a projector and like a setup and like go and have families host viewing parties because the themes of like family and like place, I'm still trying to reinforce that. And I want it to almost be like, you know, your family reunion, but there's like a film going on and y'all watch that and then we talk about it. And so that's that's the um, that's what I want to do. Attached to both of those, I want to partner with um, one Marquetta's organization is doing a lot of good work um, in Eastern North Carolina, trying to teach older Black people how to farm or just like reinforcing that, um, so that we can continue to be self sufficient as Black people. Um, and so just like partnering th with those organizations who are already doing work around environmental justice. What an incredible conversation. And Rosita offers so many nuggets of actionable wisdom for those of us who truly care about the integrity of documentary film. 
one, some bridges need to be burned because they never were for us anyway. Two, you can only be a community member by being in the community. Three, figure out specific ways to dismantle the hierarchy between filmmaker and participant. Four, hold yourself accountable by surrounding yourself with people who have your same values. Five, take care of your participants and crew by creating and acting upon a wellness plan for when you're on set. And last but not least, ask and continue to ask your protagonist, what would you like to get out of this experience? Then act upon that. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcasts. In our next episode, we're staying in Chi-Town for one more episode as I speak with director, producer, and cinematographer Ashley O'Shea. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. 